Okay, Naganago Miko Cheese Chase Takom Aki. Hi, my name is Red Thunderwoman. Uh, my English uh, married name is Michelle Robinson. I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, composed of the Wesley, Chiniki, Bearskaw Nations, and the Dene from Sutina Nation. We acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honour the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yolanai's Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People, in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klitschotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical in creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as the guest and acknowledging your role or my role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. But I can share what I know as I walk my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and if you go to hopeforwellness.ca, there's a texting feature. For non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support to our show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give but would love to listen in, I'd like to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I have a YouTube channel, and I would love to have you subscribe if you're uh, a YouTuber. For podcasts, we're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. I have to give a shout out to my super loyal donors, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Melissa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Sharon, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. So thank you all for tuning in. Today I have my special guest who's actually a good friend of mine that I've been lucky enough to walk down my red road with, and I'd like to introduce Chad Cowie. But Chad, I would like you to introduce yourself the way you would like to introduce yourself. Okay. Ani Bojo, Chad Indishnakaz, Manoman Kanning and Dunjaba, Montreal Megwadoda, Mayagadodam. So for my uh, Anishinaabe brothers and sisters who might be hearing, you'll know that I was speaking Anishinaabe. I am... Um, 
my name is Chad, as uh, Michelle mentioned. I am from the Mississauga Diverse Lake community, which is near Peterborough, Ontario, also Williams Treaty and Dish with the Spoon Treaty. Um, I currently live outside, well, I live in the Montreal area. Um, I'm a part of the Wolf Clan. Um, I am mixed, because I don't know if this is video or if this is going to be radio, so I know that you can Both. see uh, Okay, great. Okay, so great. I was not prepared for that part. Um, so as you can see, I am stereotypically looking uh, white. Um, that is a privilege that I know that I have in, in this world, um, and I acknowledge that. Um, I get to see privilege change as soon as people find out I'm not full white. I watch it change in some people's eyes, their demeanor. So anyone who says privilege does not exist or that white privilege does not exist, uh, I'd like them to walk in my shoes to actually watch the eyes and watch the way the person's body language and the, the, the tone changes when they realize I'm not just white. Um, and of course, I obviously have that experience. I don't have the same experience as someone who is stereotypically looking like a, a way that some people think Native people should look or how Black people should look or Middle Eastern or, or in general. Um, but I, I do see it change. I, I watch their way that they interact with me change. And so that's something that someone needs to, to see firsthand themselves to realize that, no, they have privilege. Um, I, my, my, my Anishinaabe side, my Mississauga side, because the Mississaugas are part of the Anishinaabe, um, comes through my mother, uh, which comes through my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Um, I have Irish background as well. Um, I am a graduate of the West of Western University in London, Ontario, down in um, shared territory between the, uh, the, uh, the the Chippewa, the the Muncie, uh, or the Delaware and uh, Oneida, part of the Six Nations. Uh, I am talking to you, obviously, currently right now from Mohawk traditional territory. Um, so I acknowledge that, and I'm talking to you, obviously, um, the host here, who is on uh, Treaty Seven territory. Um, I am. Also a graduate uh, with my master's degree in political studies from the University of Manitoba in Treaty 1 territory, Anishinaabe territory and Métis territory. Um, and then I'm also a current PhD candidate from the University of Alberta up in Treaty 6 territory, Edmonton and also Cree territory. My apologies for using the English words. You don't want to hear me butcher uh, Cree words. It took me forever to learn Niwa. <laughs> so, uh, and, um, uh, to using gun, 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 I, I can't even say it. I'm still learning the proper term for Mohawk in their language, Ganiaga or something like that. I apologize for anyone who's listening who's Mohawk. Um, but I currently am, yeah, a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta. I am also a course instructor and researcher at uh, McGill University. So mm -hmm. I'm coming from there. My, um, my partner being from Toronto, um, French and French and Canadian. Uh, well, he he'll say he is Quebecois and Australian. I'll correct him and say no, he's English and French. And then, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will talk about modern modern straight constructs and how it's more citizenship and not ethnicity. But again, sorry to anyone who's Canadian, Quebecois, or who who identifies that way, Australian. But um, I don't mean that to be rude. But it's more of a citizenship, and Quebec is a whole other. Um, discussion because of nation building and, and whether or not in Quebec sovereignty can um, override indigenous nation. And I wrote a whole paper on that a few years ago. Some sovereigntists did not like that, but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm here to talk about pretty much what I've done. I've known Michelle for years. I got to know her through the, the indigenous uh, wing of the liberal party. When I used to be involved, I am now a recovering liberal. So, <laughs> <laughs> so many of my listeners are going to love hearing about you and you being in recovery. <laughs> uh, I I had I got involved in in just I, I started to become more politically astute prior to the 2000 and 
for election that brought in Paul Martin's minority government. I, that was my first real federal election to be able to vote in. Um, and I, we can have a whole discussion about why I ended up getting into politics, but um, I got involved probably bet- just before the 2006 election. I, I joined the party in 2005. And back in the day, you could join the federal and provincial parties, of the liberal parties of Ontario and Canada at the same time. Um, and I got involved at that time because that was two years into the new, um, the new government of Dalton McGuinty at the time. Um, and it was just, it was just more the, where I felt comfortable. Um, I found that there was a lot of ways to move forward, but after, um, what is it? I, you know, you know, when did I, when did I retire? When did I quit 2018? Um, yeah. About 13, 14 years. Um, I just felt there was no more I could do. There's a lot of political baggage. There are people who were not happy with me because I spoke up and, um, I took seriously the way the party approached indigenous stuff and, tried to be that bridge but it was hard with certain people eventually you know to be a part of that group who helped rebuild the party between 2011 to 2015 and watching almost everyone I knew during that period disappear um for people who you know disappeared during that time as well um all of a sudden come back and then you know get first dips and stuff because of clout elitism etc um not saying everyone is obviously bad involved there are good people and bad people in all parties, including the conservatives, um, please, people who are listening, don't um, let like don't let your jaw drop too much. But um, I've met some good people in all parties, um, but obviously there are a lot of people who are very colonial minded and who don't get it and who um, think that they know best for us and forget that that you know that's been done for us since like 1603 when yeah. Quebec City was formed. So, <laughs> so yeah. Well, and because you and I have such a history together with policy, like we are literally in the trenches with people who want to help us Indigenous people. Yes. (laughs) Those well-meaning helpers. Yeah, and fighting back again so like when when i started when i got involved it was again right when the party when when the party collapsed in in 2011 i'd been involved already i was the youth rep between the young liberals of canada and the indigenous wing prior to that i had served two years that was my first time really getting involved jeff copanis who Mm. had been around for a long time he had been a senior policy advisor to um to paul martin paul martin is another reason why i got involved i I really like both of them Mm -hmm. um I got approached to run for the youth position. I did that. And then obviously I was in that position right up through the May 2011 election, which saw the party reduced to third party status for the first time ever. The commission had already started to fall apart after Paul Martin stepped down. Um, back in 2006, because there was in, in internal fighting between Métis, First Nations, and and I, I would say mainly between First Nations and Métis, because I, I, I never had met an Inuit person who was involved until the last term that I was on when we had someone from Nunavut. Yeah. Um, but uh, I went through that, watching that all happen. And then when the party fell apart and people abandoned it, there's a few of us left, myself and Cherish Clark from the um, Clinkett Nation and who lives up in, in, in Whitehorse. We got together because we had both been on the previous executive to help start rebuilding. And I remember rebuilding right from the beginning and having to fight with provincial wings of the party over who has control over the indigenous wing and people being thrust towards us, not because they were actually necessarily good or they knew what they were doing or if they had good connections to the community, but because they had a card because they were, they had self-identified at times. Yeah. Uh, and we that in, in, in the, in, in, in Indian country, um, that that's not always the best thing. Cause you know, Patrick Brazil <laughs> is a good example of that. Um, so 
because every time he'd speak, you know, Kidigan Zibi, the, the, the Algonquin community that he is technically a member of because of Indian Act standards, but mm-hmm. not well, you know, looked up to by necessarily most of the community. I'm saying that from my perspective and what I've read, but I don't know for sure if that's the case. You'd have to ask Kidigan Zibi about that. But I know every time he'd speak, they'd, you know, they, they had released a few times a notice saying that Patrick Rousseau doesn't speak on their behalf. So, you know, because um, I've been like a distant Indigenous. Um, my status card says Yellowknife. I've never lived there. And I always wonder, will I ever say something at a certain point that Yellowknife Denny will have to like put out a statement saying, yes, she's one of our members, but no, she does not say in any way represent us. <laughs> well, I think what you said at the beginning, and I forgot to mention that. So I do want to state that again, in no way when we're talking about any of this, am I talking on behalf of all Indigenous people. Michelle, you were there at that one policy meeting that we had for a candidate in Edmonton when that woman came up to me and said, oh, you know, how do we solve this? And I needed to speak for all Native people. I'm like, no, I can't do that. And she's like, no, you must. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Um, when I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking from someone who is a two-spirited, Anishinaabe, Irish background who grew up with a single mother in Southern Ontario in our, my traditional territory, Mississauga Terry, but also whose mom was a military, was a member of the military in Canada. And I grew up on some of the military bases. So I'm coming from a very mixed perspective as well as coming where I'm from my my community uh, according to residential schools and what they were supposed to do would have been a success story because it had gotten rid of the Indian in most of my community we have been working really hard to bring back our Mississauga roots the fact that I can say that I'm Mississauga today is a big thing because if you talk to me in 1993 I would have known that I was native that's all I would have known yeah, I know. Uh, Going down this red road together has been really interesting. Slowly unpacking who we actually are, hey? Yes. Um, and so, like, there's always that question, right? It's, where are you from? That is so important to be able to answer and, and understand. And not saying that everyone who's not born into their community, who grows up in their community, is not a member of that community. But those of you who grow up outside of it still, you know, where are you from? You still identify with where your family comes from you know to do that um so having just that understanding and and not and i know i try not to be abrasive with people who might say you know oh i'm from toronto it's like okay where does your family come from though like because and most of these people are still they're wanting to learn they're wanting to understand they're wanting to re-educate they're wanting to re-establish that red road within their own family that has been lost or denied or hidden because of what some people were forced to do a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. Um, there are 20 people years ago, like how many 60 scoop people, right? They don't even know who they are. Well, people, if people in my community would deny who they would deny their indigenous background well into the eighties. So mm-hmm. um, there, there is that. And people forget that that's recent. Um, last residential school, 96 millennial scoop still going on. The mm-hmm. fact that we are still told who is one of us and who is not. The fact that we have permanent records if we have status. Um, we're wards of the state still. I try and explain that to my students that in, standing in front of them as an authority figure, as an academic, as a professor, not that yet, I'm on my way. I'm a, I, want, I want to be a professor. I'm still a PhD candidate, so you can't really be a professor until you have that doctor in front of it. Um, but um, explaining to them that I'm a ward of the state and yet I'm there making decisions on their life, but yet Canada has a decision on my life, period, is... You can watch it click with it. You can watch it turning in their brains. They're trying to understand how that works. Um, 
And that's usually when I will, you know, talk about, you know, having a number and all that stuff. And I'll be like, well, my number is one six two zero zero four six six zero one. What's your number for your background? That's usually what I lead with people. Or, yep. well, you know, I don't look native, so you're not native. You can't be. And it's like, oh, what's it? What's a native supposed to look like? And that's usually when they're like, uh. stereotype, 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 yeah. I know. <laughs> long hair it is where my iris side comes out of my hair gets real frizzy it grows outwards so um a ponytail uh long haired uh it is not an option for me because it will never go long hair it will go outward hair so so funny i always think a wob canoe um this is long before he ever got elected and he was like you know for an ojibwe with curly hair the razor was the best invention ever (laughs) well for those who will see this like i have my my pandemic hair going on because uh the the hair salons that aren't opening until monday here and i have not had a haircut since (laughs) mid-february so my hair is naturally wavy so it's been coming in and the curls are all back in and i have to i'm I'm glad that i showered a lot after my hike today and that my hair is actually (laughs) good because if you had got me in the morning michelle it would have been its own monster it it has its own life um so funny those clippers uh Size two on the sides and a little bit tall on the top is always what works for me. Um, mm. But yeah. Um, so if that means that you are able to get haircuts on Monday, that means our beautiful prime minister's locks are going to get cut, doesn't it? Maybe he does. Doesn't he live in the Ottawa side though? Yeah. Is he, is, yeah. Um, I think Ontario's opens on the 15 as well. There seemed to be some hand in hand stuff going on between uh, Ontario and Quebec with how things are opening. Um, There's a bridge been... that separates you. Like that's it. Yeah, we could have. I could have went like walked to Gatineau and just been like hello across the river. But um, I, I I stayed on my little island because I, I live in Little Perot, which is a tiny island off of the main island of Montreal. And because it has probably some of the like it has the best rates of lowest infection rates for the Greater Montreal area, and my my respiratory issues because I have how do you call it a pre-health condition or what's it called <laughs> yeah yeah pre-existing health condition yeah that's thing um i haven't really left the island i've only um gone a little bit like so i think two weeks ago i went with dan to go get his some stuff from his office in dorval because that's where his office was that was the first time i had been to the main island since march 5th wow um, and then we just went for a hike up near Mount Tremblant because not a lot of people were out there. And, you know, we were able to do paths without having to worry about people being too close to us. Um, and that, that's, that was the second time I've left the, 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 the island of, or the region that I'm in, 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 in the greater Montreal area. I wear a mask wherever I go. Um, it's funny, some people are shocked to see it. I don't know why, seeing how Montreal has such a bad level. But um, people forget that it doesn't just impact people that the people who are spreading it are young people like it, it's the 20 I know uh, back in April it was the 20 to 29 year olds in, in Montreal who are spreading it oh. um yeah because they, they were moving around there was no fear they're like the, the I think they, they showed in Canada recently there's that CBC um CBC had posted a thing and had some really good diagrams and graphs and charts that were really interactive and like I think three percent of the population who are 49 and below are who have passed away from it it's been mostly 15 above who who've who've suffered but um i'm not taking any chances respiratory issues um early onset of emphysema from growing up with secondhand smoke i uh i don't i don't take the risk or else everything i've worked for for the last (laughs) like 15 years will be no point um i'd I'd like to have doctor my name before i end up uh having to uh 
journey to the next world. <laughs> to, to yeah, no, no, I, uh, oh, that's, uh, that'd be tough, man. I've been watching you go through your, um, you know, academic career and such, and it's just not easy. And I think, like, I can't even imagine as a straight cis, um, the homophobia, let alone the bigger, uh, like you and I have racial battle fatigue and scars together. <laughs> well, I've, the homophobia has not ever really been a thing that I've had to face. I've never had that issue. Um, it seems to be like, I've tried to explain this with students. Like I've, I've maybe in, in my time since coming out when I was 18, cause I'm, I'm 36 now, right? Yeah. I just, I turned 36 a couple weeks ago. I keep forgetting that I'm actually that old. Um, I came hey, out hey, 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 just kidding. <laughs> <Keep going. laughs> um, so I, I know for about half of my life now, if I correctly did that right, this is why I did social science and not math. Um, yeah, 18 plus 18 is about 36, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, people. Yeah, uh, PhD student here. Um, <laughs> but um, half of, I've been out for half of my life now, and I've maybe lost one friend over it. I've never really had to face many issues with it. The one friend I lost had had a crush on me, too, it turned out. She, she was not too happy when I found out. This was back when I was in my early 20s. But um, When you were still straight. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, but I and I never dated any girls in in, in high school. I, I I couldn't I couldn't do that. I couldn't date someone if I did not actually have feelings for them. But I was still coming to terms with myself. But that that's me. I know why people do stuff. Um, I know people try to fit in. I know people. You know, we're told that it's the right way to be heterosexual is the right way. So people do try to fit into that. Um, sometimes before they come to terms with self, and sometimes people don't come to terms with it. It depends, right? Totally. Uh, but uh. I've not had a lot of issues with it, but I'm also six foot three and I've gone anywhere from like 195 pounds to about 260. So people tend to be afraid of my size. They don't necessarily make comments to me. Um, and I'm, I'm in Blackfoot territory. So I'm like the short little Dene that's always hanging out with the natives and it hasn't changed much when I see you out East. Yeah. The one who comes down, the one who came down South somehow got stuck down there. <laughs> um, <coughs> pardon me. Um, but I've had to on a regular basis defend being first nation that's where if I, i've where i've always had the i've always faced the the issues my community has been very supportive of me as being out um there's only been a select few people in my community who have had issues with it but they have a lot of their own um healing to do mm. uh, with 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 various items and it's really only been two people um one who married into the community um but it, it's, it's mainly been i've had to defend being a status first nation or defend indigenous people or defend indigenous rights. That's what I regularly have had to do in my life. And there's a post from U of Alberta called it's, it's Canada at 150. And I was a guest post and I had talked about having my intersections and you know, at Canada 150, you know, people are celebrating 150 years of Canada and I was quiet because you know, at one point, yeah, I celebrate because I was able to marry the person I love. Uh, we were able to have a marriage. We are legally recognized by the Canadian state. But at the same time, the Canadian state tells me who I am. They also can decide what to do with my body when I die. They can decide what to do with my property. Um, they can decide almost anything with me um, because they're the ones who are telling us who's one of them. They have told me I'm Indian according to Section 27 of the Indian Act. Um, I know I'm Anishinaabe. I know I'm Mississauga. Um, and my kids will be Mississauga. But my kids, whether we adopt or we have biological kids, will be Ojibwe, they'll be Mississauga, according to, well, they'll be Indian according to Indian Act, but um, they're, they're going to have to make a choice between love or if they're going to want to marry another Native person in order to keep the status going to their children. 
they won't they 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 have to make that choice um and it, it's still weird with how stuff is decided over that because i want them to be able to marry out of love um and so no matter what my my children my grandchildren no they will know their mississauga background because that status card is not what makes me mississauga or anishinaabe um it just Canada has unilaterally imposed a system that they've tried to put in to try to say, oh, this is what gives you rights. No, my treaty gives me rights. And they have no rights to decide who's a part of that in our community or my nation. They choose to do that. They unilaterally imposed it. And so when people talk about getting rid of the Indian Act, yeah, no one wants it. The question is, how do you get rid of it, though? One side says, yes, get rid of it. But you need to dissect the treaties out of it that Canada has unilaterally put into it on their own choice, which the laws with it are put into place because of the judiciary that Canada has built based off of colonialism. So if Canada's laws are in place and they're the ones who are superior, why would we trust them to dismantle the Indian Act without first protecting those treaties? It's the same thing with the Jay Treaty. Um, so it's not about, the Indian Act is not what protects our rights. The Indian Act imposes who is allowed and it, limited, and it limits who is allowed to have those rights based on who they think is deserving of it, not based on who our nations are. And again, the Indian Act is who imposes the band council system. Not all chiefs and councils are bad, but they're not our traditional system. And my community, my nation, never agreed to give up our hereditary system. And when we talk about hereditary system, we're not talking about hereditary in the sense of European monarchs where, you know, no matter what, you know, the king can pass it down to his son, whether his son is evil or stupid or not or you know in some cases where it could go down to the queen or it could go down to a princess very rare obviously it depended on who if there was no males there in some cases but in our systems it was used oh, like hereditary yes the chief could it could go down to the son or it could go down to a family member but most nations especially out east had a clan system in place so they had some system in place to keep it in check so for instance the Haudenosaunee if the clan mothers did not find that the hereditary chief was good enough they could remove them uh, it's the same thing with the Wabanaki Confederacy which for you know a certain liberal counterpart of mine the Wabanaki Confederacy does exist and I would hope that he's learned that now because that included the Abenaki as you know the current female co-chair of the IPC knows and um included the Mi'kmaq the Maliseet and and so on yeah um hopefully he read one of the 13 different articles I had to read him when he told me to prove it um, yeah, there's a sore subject there, but, um, but Dude, like they, they had, <laughs> I just did a Latin acknowledgement today and was told my English is so good. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. So like, I, I feel you. It's a constant racial battle fatigue of proving, oh, and no concept of Indian residential schools, no concept that they have a role as treaty people. Oh, my friend. But that's also because people don't understand that settler and colonialism does not necessarily just mean white people today. It's, yes, the first were the French and the English in what we now refer to as Canada based on colonial borders. Um, but post, especially post Pierre Trudeau, when multiculturalism was adopted and Canada's cultural mosaic was put in place, people forget that you can be any background, even in some cases Native people, who forget that they're a part of it because they've lost their identity or they've lost that connection to it or they've been absorbed for various reasons, it depends. Um, but they forget that just because someone might be brown or someone might be black or, or um, Southeast Asian or even um, Asian in general, like it, it doesn't mean that you're not settler colonial. Settler colonialism is not the same as colonialism. Settler colonialism is when you kind of take when you, you join that new establishment, settler colonialism is about pretty much establishing oneself, putting in new laws, putting in new rules, uh, putting in a whole new... the place. 
gaming the place, getting rid of the old system, trying to then absorb what's left of the original populations into it and then trying to get rid of their self their, their difference in identity simply because you know um it prevents the legitimacy from fully being recognized of a state um and with the fact that immigration opened up to not just allowing english-speaking people in the uh, english sorry white english-speaking people in the um commonwealth which I'm not opposed to. I think it's very good. I've, I've learned a lot from different people from different parts of the world. And I think it's good that you're not limiting to each other because what happened with, with how Canada treated um, Chinese men through the Chinese head tax, how they treated um, um, I don't, uh, people who are now a part of what is called the present, uh, the present state of India, because India is a construct as well as a state. There are different groups of people who actually are from what we call the Indian subcontinent. India is a construct just like Canada, Canada yeah. is. Um, the Komagata Maru, um, what we did with Japanese people during World War II, what we did with Ukrainians in World War I, and, and, and so on. And, and um, the fact that you had pushback on, on Black people being allowed to immigrate here with, I think you shared the article from Calgary in like 1904, where the mayor was like, told the Black citizens and told the white citizens, you know, get along, and then told the Black citizens to stop convincing other Black people to move to Calgary. Yeah. This is like 1904. Yeah. Um, so, like, this, this stuff does exist, and we forget about it. but what we forget though is that it comes to a point when you're doing the citizenship test and you're joining it. I've heard from, from friends of mine who are, who are new Canadians who are in the process of becoming Canadian. Um, they don't learn a lot about it. Cause you know, there's only one page in, in the citizenship guys. Like we, we, we respect indigenous uh, rights and first nations, Inuit, Métis. It's like, cool. But what does that mean? Um, I think there was a draft to add in that, you know, treaty rights and acknowledge that they will uphold treaty rights. But I think that fell apart. Um, just like section 35 originally in 82 was supposed to have a lot more, um, gumption to it, but that was put out for ex the word existing. Um, but, um, settler colonialism is not just a white people thing. This is just general sense of people who buy into that new state that they're a part of. And I understand why they do. They've left some cases, they've left really bad hardships. They fled. Um, but a lot of people choose to come here and they forget that that includes understanding that they are on indigenous territories maybe their ancestors may not have partaken in it but they forget that today they're still agreeing to be a part of a state and they agreed to be a part of a state and they obtained the citizenship to a state who still tells me if i'm allowed to be and allowed to have my my treaty rights they're still accepting into a state who can still decide what to do with my body when i die because the indian act says so they're still buying into a state that still has laws on the book that we're not allowed in pool halls which I only found out recently because of uh, Bob Joseph's book. So, <laughs> 20, 21 things you may not know about the Indian Act. I strongly suggest that to anyone who's listening. Um, you know what the worst is? I have that book and I've been waiting for my book club to get to it so we can read it together. And I, uh, there are times I just start reading other books. And uh, right now I'm in the middle of uh, Gay History of Calgary. So I, I got to send you a copy because I'm sure you out of all people will find it hysterically funny but sad at times too. I would very much like to find that out uh, and, and read about that. Um, it's it's just amazing some of the stuff that's on, on, on the laws in, in the book. And people forget that in, in Nova Scotia, there was a law on the books until 2002 that talked about being able to get a certain amount of pounds, like British pounds, from bringing in a Micmac scale. And it was it was it depended on how old they were, if they were female, male, or a child, how much you could get from that scale. Um, and people forget with everything going on down down in, with what happened in, uh, to George Floyd, uh, 
it's good to see people acting, but I'm so sick and tired of seeing, well, you know, at least it's not like that here in Canada. Um, where were the complaints from people when in January and February with Wet'suwet'en, where were the complaints from people about people who were, you know, promoting Shoot a Savage Day? Or where were the people who were decrying the person who, you know, said that Canada should napalm Indigenous communities and make us learn our place? There was another person who told, who said, you know, oh, let's just cut off everything to them. Then they'll, they'll learn where their place is and how, how lucky they are. Um, like, where was the outcry from that? I know someone ran a car into some of the protesters here in Montreal back then, but um, it's, it's a hard thing in Canada, I think, for people to acknowledge that it is free reign when it comes to Native people. Um, you can talk about them. You, you can discuss what is okay for them and what is not in general in society because we're looked at as just pol things to be administered and things that need policy in place. Um, and that, that tends to be the problem. And I try to talk to my students about that, that this is how Indigenous people are approached. And you need to remember we are human. We are people. Um, and you're talking about us as if we're in far-flung corners of the world um, or far-flung corners of the country, not realizing that, you know, you know, I might be sitting right next to you when you're talking about whether or not I have a right to, to this or that, or that, you know, making claims that I don't pay taxes, um, or that I have a free education. Ontario student loans will have my soul until I die. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I don't know anyone who doesn't have like a minimum $30,000, um, you know, student loan debt issue. And like that was treaty. It's another issue of broken treaty. Well, and that's, that's the other thing, and I, I'm, some people might not get very happy with me here, but it also depends on treaty, right? Mm -hmm. Treaty, some treaties out there and what territory is shared with Alberta go very far with details about a medicine chest, a social services chest, and an education chest. My community, my nation area, we don't talk about any of that stuff, but we also did not give up in any way, shape, or form land rights. We did not give up claims to our water. We do not give up claims to anything. Mm -hmm. So it offsets it still because if we actually were paid the right amount for using the land that we are on, because we never gave it up, um, we wouldn't have to worry about that being in our clause because we'd be able to naturally be able to cover all the costs of it and probably foster <laughs> people for education outside of our community yeah. or outside of our But um, that, that's part of the issue with it. So that also has to be the talk when we talk about getting rid of the Indian Act that we need to acknowledge that in general, people when talking about the getting rid of the Indian Act, they need to acknowledge that when you do that, yes, it's going to open up a whole bunch of different ways and not one unit is going to administer it, but we're not all one people. Indigenous is a blanket term. Uh, I know we need, I know for people, they it's frustrated when they're referred to as Indigenous. I understand that. I think for the progress of reconciliation and learning, a blanket term is sometimes needed. Indigenous is the one that I prefer because from my understanding, what I've learned about it, it's the term that has been accepted widely by Indigenous groups across the world. There's 13,000 different Indigenous groups that, are, that, that exist still across the, across the planet. And this was the term that was kind of adopted because it was self-decided. Unlike Aboriginal, which was imposed by, you know, 13 white men over constitutional discussions in the 80s. Um, I know Métis felt more comfortable with Aboriginal because of the fact that it didn't actually say First Peoples. Because I know for Métis, sometimes there's the issue about the fact that, you know, it Métis come to exist because of interrelations between French and, and English uh, and, and other people from the British Isles. And, you know, and to, to some extent, the, the Cree and the Ojibwe, the definition of what Métis is, I'm not going to get into that because... Oh, we only have, like, what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm also not Métis. I don't, I don't want to touch that one. So, uh, nope. Yeah, <laughs> my, my people aren't even allowed to decide who's one of them yet. So... <laughs> I, and well, and did you know my band actually was considered? Uh, what did they call it? 
um, extinct. At one point in time, the Canadian government pretended that we were extinct. Can you believe that? Yeah, well, there's um, they do that with a lot of, there's a lot of absorbing of stuff. And you see it even going on with Trump down in the States. They've just uh, re-decided not to acknowledge um, a group in the East, I think. I can't remember what the group was, but. Yeah, um, no, I was talking about it in one of my earlier um, in podcasts, actually, and trying to follow that because, yeah, just arbitrarily decide, yeah, your tribe's not going to exist anymore. Settle colonialism. Yep. So, and and it's right in front of everybody, and yet they say things like, oh my, well, I shouldn't be punished for what my grandparents did, and it's like, well, you won't even talk about reconciliation, so why can't we talk about that? Like, why can't we talk about the truth of that? There's a good post. Let me see if I can find it again. If you don't mind, I'm going to probably pause for here, and then I'll read it. Because yeah. it's a very poignant post that's been coming up lately with everything going on. Um, a lot of, uh, mostly Native people and, and, and friends of mine who have African um, background or African descent background, they've been the ones to like it, obviously, because people don't know what to do with it. Because yeah. um, people get scared of it. But it was so powerful and it was so to the point and it, it's actually on my Instagram. So I'm going to go to that one. One second. <laughs> oh, I'm, bad with- I'm so bad with Instagram and I need to go back to that because, uh, yeah, there's some great quotes that are there. And I'm, I'm a real stinker for taking a picture of somebody's tweet and then, yeah. but I'll source it at least so that that way, you know, I'm not taking credit for their words. I saw this post on Facebook and I, it didn't show who wrote it. So I put it as anonymous. Um, but to whoever wrote this, if, if they ever see it, I want to give them credit for it. And I applaud them for stating this. It is so perfect. It says, especially with after George Floyd and the talks that have been going on in Canada, but between what's going on, what happens with, 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 um, with black people and indigenous people here in Canada. That's been the constant talk here um, where both are included and that's a good thing because they're showing allyship and that, you know, there is a need to bring up indigenous people in regards to Canada because of how bad things are here regarding us. But if you blame native American communities for their poverty, remember that the entire continent was stolen from them. If you blame black American communities for their relative poverty, remember that black Americans were stolen from a continent trafficked and enslaved for nearly 300 years. Tell me again about how your family started from nothing when they immigrated. Didn't they start from whiteness? Seems like a pretty good start. The American dream required dual genocides, but tell me again about fairness and equality and equal opportunity. Tell me about democracy modeled after the Iroquois Confederacy. Tell me your proud heritage and I will show you the violence that made it so. Yes. Yes, yes, um, yes. Yeah, and it's not just, it's not just um, whiteness anymore. It also is settler privilege that we need to talk about. That yeah. is a key. Well, do minorities who, who who live in Canada face discrimination? Yes. Do they face discrimination in the States? Yes. There is a hierarchy that exists. And if you look it up, there is a thing that was posted, and this was years ago, and it's still the same. But if you look at the, the hierarchy of how things are in Canada regarding race, you will see white Englishmen at the top. You will see French, white Frenchmen at the top, a second. And then you'll see white women who are English, and then white French women who who are fourth and then it goes down and the last four categories are african male african-american male or uh and then african-american female native male indigenous male indigenous female yes and i've I've tried to talk to people about that when talking about how when we were involved politically about how i would go about getting things done that needed to get done and i would always bring up because i've watched you struggle to get things through and i've watched other indigenous women who were involved try to say the same thing that I'd say. And I, the way I would describe it is like, if I had something to do, I would maybe have to say it eight times. Mm-hmm. If I needed it done quickly, 
I knew to go to a white woman who maybe you have to say it two times, but if it's really, really important, I knew to go to a white male who was an ally who would maybe have to say it once. And then when they're like, oh my God, I'm like, that's nothing. I'm like, if you're an indigenous woman, you're probably saying it 16 times because I've watched that happen over things. Um, there's key things. Some people know how to schmooze better, but um, for some of us, we just don't have the time to do that. We want things better. Like we need to have things better. I want things better than they were with me growing up. I want them better than what my mom grew up in. Um, I want my nephews and my niece um, to have the same benefits as my non-native nephew and soon to be niece. Um, I want my niece to be able to know that she could go walking and she won't have to worry about disappearing and it just being assumed that she um, was a drug addict or a runaway or that, um, you know, it was assumed that she might be uh, someone who, who got into sex work and therefore, you know, her life was um, just inevitably going to be wasted. And that's a whole other discussion about sex work. Um, obviously, we both have a good common friend, Naomi, who, uh, who I've learned a lot from on that. But it's also how people are approached about it. There's different ways that certain groups are approached based on their ethnicity and even that work. But um, I want my, my nephews to be able to not have to worry about getting called out at a store simply because they show their status card because of how it is in Ontario. Because you can do that at point of sale. But my niece especially, like, it's... It's, it's weird with that. I, my, my nephews, I worry to an extent as I've been seeing things that have been going on, but um, they also have the privilege of blending in like I do. Um, my niece does too, but she has darker hair. She has um, brown eyes. Um, so my concern is just because of where she's from and where I'm from, it doesn't matter if you look at it, it matters based on your last name. They know in Peterborough region that if you're a Cowie or a Howard or a Muskrat or a Potash or a Laux, that you're from Hiawatha, just as they know if you're not, um, or um, Jacobs, that you're from Curve Lake, for instance, or that if you are um, a Smoke, you're from Alderville. They, they know that in the region. That's how it is based on that. Cause we, we blend in a bit. We've had contact since, you know, the 1500s. So there was marrying between both sides because the idea of being native uh, and being this blood level is a whole construct by Canada through the Indian Act. It's not how we did things. We always had our own systems. And if my husband wanted to be Anishinaabe, he would have to agree to follow the tenets of what it meant to be Anishinaabe, like a, a citizenship in a sense. Yep. He would be able to still be Anishinaabe. But obviously that's not how it works under the Indian Act. So. Well, and let's not forget the amount of rape. Like, in, at the end of the day, the violence against Indigenous women includes rape. And that is, a lot of us are products of rape. So Yeah. Yeah. Sexual assaults, um, inappropriate touching. And I know they talk about how, you know, it comes from people who we know. Well, you know, Native people don't just know other Native people. And people forget that. So I know that's what they've tried to say is, oh, it's an internal issue because, you know, it's no. obviously, and they don't realize that it's more than that. Yes, I'm status first nation, but clearly, clearly, I know non-native people, um, and I grew up knowing non-native people because a family of mine is non-native, obviously. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, just just the, the, those concerns alone for my niece and the fact that, like like I said to yourself, like the fact of what she might have to do to be able to be heard sometimes, or or if she'll be ignored. Um, and that's that battle fatigue. I mean, ultimately, that racial battle fatigue and sexist battle fatigue it's just it's so infuriating um knowing like my husband and I've told him this a million times because you know I've run municipally and federal or provincially and by just simply be being an indigenous woman 
um, my husband, they would love him and, you know, vote for him in a second. But I'm native, I'm a woman, so they absolutely can't vote for me. I was just recently at a Black Lives Matter meeting and, you know, it was really clear they just wanted to have a Black um, community member as the next municipal um, candidate. And, you know, it was kind of a hard moment because it's like, you know, I'm not going to fight this. And I already ran and you don't know who I am and it's fine. And I just, it's so clear. Like I ran twice. I know, I know what I'm being told. So, and it, and it sucks because I mistakenly thought, you know, we were in a time of reconciliation and people would want solutions. Right. And by somebody who's second generation energy, but apparently not. So. Well, and that's a hard thing, right? It's yes minorities in some places make up the majority, but if people forget that that does not mean we're all united. And it's that whole divide and conquer, right? The British have done it well since invading the Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish. They have been practicing their, the tactics and colonial tactics that are still in place in Canada and the way of dividing, we can say communities. I really despise when I hear someone say, you know, we need to look past all these definitions of each other and you know realize that we're all one it's nice to say that when you come from the side that makes a decision on who is who and who is allowed to have what um it's nice to be from that that group of people who have gotten to that point where you can be like oh we're all one yeah well there's still people who aren't allowed to decide who's one of them and there are still people who have been othered because of that group who is now at that point of saying oh we're all one um and again yeah. if you don't know what systemic racism is just shut your pie hole man <laughs> yeah and again, that whole thing about like you, there can be laws that say that we're supposed to be equal. That that does not mean equality and justice are actually there. Right. Um, we can see that with everything going on right now. How how many people would you see get their knee, get a knee put on their neck to be held on over something so ridiculous um, compared to like if it was someone? Well, Dylan Roof, the person who went into a black church and murdered people. And he was just walked out. He had McDonald's or something on the way home. Yeah, um, I just shared that um, uh, cartoon, and it was him, like clearly him with a stupid haircut, eating a burger in the back of a cop car, and a a guy beside him who was black, who was like beat up, had goose eggs, and said, uh, "Yeah, I just shot up a church." And the other guy was like, "Yeah, I had a broken headlight or tail light." And it's like, like they, it's so painfully clear and obvious. And I'm sure you've seen the uh, RCMP tackle and beat the shit out of uh, Chief Adam. Hey, yeah, seen that yeah. too. Yeah, well, so. as soon as that happened, I was like, I, I had no doubt that there was more tough stuff in there. Like, the training training is important, and the level of training that needs to be done that includes also, in a sense, of counseling or social sociological understanding is so important that they do not get taught. Not all cops are bad, of course. Not all people are bad. Not all politicians are bad. Not all white people are bad. I get that. But there are the select few people who are there, and then there are those who are quiet and don't do anything about it, per se. That's the issue. I know people who are cops who are good. I'm not saying that all cops are bad, but why is it so hard to understand that more training needs to be done in regards to sociological understanding or even understanding of socioeconomic backgrounds, um, how to deal with people who have addictions, people who have um, mental health. Um, so Why are I, I, you I, talking to the wrong demographic here? Hola. So you and I are having these conversations and like the folks out here, like they just don't get it. Um, 
you know, like literally uh, right now, my daughter's having a sleepover with a young girl who, I mean, she's the daughter of a cop. Of course I know there's some good cops, but the bottom line is it's that bigger picture of not all the good cops are kicking out the bad cops. And at the end of the day, you know, they're not acknowledging their bias. I had like an Asian immigrant um, cop look me dead in the eye and tell us that as Indigenous people, we just need to pull up our bootstraps and, uh, you know, Green Party high five in him right in front of me. And, um, you know, and, and that was my, you know, training. I'd done, done it for a year with them and they were still having this attitude, still not seeing so systemic that, racism. That to that cop, I want to say, as someone who looks white and who is trying to be an academic, who's trying to teach about this, here's, here's my experience. I've been told not to be emotional. I've watched as an entire classroom in my undergrad debated about whether or not Native people were allowed to have the rights or not. I had my hand up the entire hour in my intro to political science class when we talked about First Nation rights. Well, one side told the other side that I wasn't allowed rights, and the other side told that other side that I was allowed rights. And I'm the only Native person in the class going like, no, this is history right here. This is exactly what's going on. Uh, I was ignored the entire hour. Um, and to that cop, I would say, yeah, we pull up our bootstraps. What happens when we do pull up our bootstraps and we're still not listening to you? I will try to talk to people about Native stuff. I will be told I'm not, I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not Native. I will correct them and then I'm not educated enough. And then I will correct them again with being a master's student or a PhD candidate now. And I'm told I know I, I'm too educated. Or, you know, as you, you've seen me get referred to as the angry, hostile native for, for, for not shutting up, for being combative, for being difficult. That's the other thing we get told of. Gaslighting. Um, so time. to the top who told you that, like, thinking he needs to go up to a northern community and go live in it for a bit and see what it's like and realize that it's not as simple as saying to pull up our bootstraps. How can we pull up our bootstraps when any economic movement that we're allowed to do is decided by Indian Affairs or Indigenous Services now? I, I think that falls into indigenous services, right? Crown indigenous relationship is more about forming new agreements and treaty relations, right? Um, but Everyone still calls it Indian affairs, and I probably will call it Indian affairs until I die. So my, my favorite thing, when I worked for a political organization out in Ontario, I'm not going to name names, um, it represents 133 of the First Nations, of the 133 First Nations that exist. Um, it was, was after Ontario had established its Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs, and it was MAA, which spells out MA. So when we would talk about them and we would talk about Indian Affairs, we called Indian Affairs PAW. So we would talk about what Ma and Pa wanted. <laughs> That's so fabulous. Yeah, they didn't like it very much, but we did. We, I, I found it hilarious when I found out and I've, I've latched onto it. So I'll talk about them like that. But the Ministry of, Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs in Ontario is now lumped with natural resources. Or is it now separate again? I know that happened right after Ford got in, but... Um, no, there's too many barriers in place for us to be able to just pull up our bootstraps. We can pull up our bootstraps and then we could walk holding those bootstraps up a mountain in a snowstorm and then not have any weapons to fight off other climbers who are coming at us with weapons or, you know, the wild animals who are trying to eat us. Because that, that's what life is like coming for from Christ that. For Christ's sakes, Chad, I had to have the conversation with Darcy and Smetha. When I have any type of like stroke or heart attack, know that you, if you do not advocate for me, I will have lifelong effects because of the racism I've already experienced continuously. Like it's almost every time I go into the stupid healthcare system and I just oh, I know, I just know that it'll be, uh, I'll have lifelong effects because they'll assume I'm a drunk native. They'll just well, assume you, it. You'll have lifelong effects if you're lucky enough to survive that visit. Exactly. Exactly. And it, well, it just I, sucks. Well, you know, 
Um, my mother um, served Canada for 17 years as a military police officer, a peacekeeper as a member of the military. Um, in um, February of 2018, she had a physical. She was told she was fine. Uh, end of March, she started to develop a cough. She was told she had pneumonia. She was given penicillin. It got worse in April. She was given more penicillin. She was given more penicillin in May. I remember talking to her when Dan and I were on a vacation and she was coughing and it was her, she just assumed it was her pneumonia. She didn't complain. Um, June, she went into the hospital in Peterborough for four days because of this pneumonia, was given more penicillin. Um, my sister had to take her into Emerge because she was having problems breathing July 11th, 2018. The doctor, thankfully this doctor, knew something was up, sent her to go get um, x-rays or CAT scan. One of them picks up on it, one of them does not. But I don't understand how it was missed. She was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, she died 11 days later. And I'm trying to still reconcile with that. Um, if you are diagnosed with cancer in my community, it's most likely a death sentence. Um, there hasn't been someone who's survived in a very long time. I'm very hopeful that we are going to have someone from our community who's dealing with, um, with breast, ca breast cancer now who's going to survive, but it's not because the system caught it early. It was just from, I, I don't fully know, so I can't fully say, but from my understanding from what I, what I, this is here say was that it happened to just get caught early because most people have gotten it later. My grandmother, um, she went misdiagnosed. She died three months after she was diagnosed. It was assumed that she just wanted pills. Um, I remember my mom being quizzed because she got diagnosed on the 11th. I came home that following week because she was supposed to go in for her consultations to find out about chemo, what could be done to give her comfort until she would eventually pass away. Um, they lost her information. So she didn't actually get her appointment. Her appointment was on the 23rd and she died the 22nd of July, 2018. Um, she had to go into the hospital earlier that uh, a couple of days before that because she was having problems breathing. The doctor in the ER, this was a different doctor, was so rude with her, made her do these tests and she couldn't do them because she was having problems breathing. Well, it turned out one of her tumors was on her bronchial tube. Uh, this other doctor who came in later did that and explained that. And um, yeah, it was just it. And my, my last conversation with my mother was, the, the weekend that she passed away, she had gone out of the hospital on Friday after she had to stay for two nights to, to keep monitor. Uh, Dan had came up. Um, we were getting ready for her, her consultations on Monday. Um, she had gone out. My, on Sunday, my, my one cousin had a birthday party. She was there. She got to see. It was a good last day for her. She, um, she got to see most of her nephews and nieces and most of her siblings. Um, when it when the party was over i took her back dan and i took her back to the house we were going to stay there that night so dan's family has a summer summer trailer um about 30 minutes north of where my community is so it was kind of funny when we met each other and we learned that you know he had grown he had had summers near where i was from and we had never really ran into ran each other each other i wouldn't be surprised as a local if i did run into him and or him and his family probably rolled my eyes at how the Toronto people were invading our area, but no, that's another story. Um, I know that feeling as a Sylvan Laker in Alberta. <laughs> um, she like, there's pictures taken that day. I can't look at the pictures because she's lost her color. You could see the color was lost. Um, 
I took her into the house. She needed help getting into the house. She was late. She had been sleeping in her recliner for, for a couple of weeks before she got diagnosed because that was easier for her to sleep. Um, I remember wrapping her in a blanket because she was cold. I went back with Dan to his family's trailer to get her luggage because we had forgotten to bring it with us that morning. We were staying with her that night because we were taking her into the consultation the next day. Um, and she had texted me that she couldn't breathe. Um, and she couldn't get a hold of my sister. So I had to get, I called my sister. My sister rushed down there. We had luckily, we had just finally established um, maybe I think a year before that we had finally built a firehouse in the community. It had been something we had been trying to do for about 25 years because when people call first response, there's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the first responders fault, but we had a couple, we had some first responders in our house, but the lo- I mean, in our community, but the location was further away. And for the longest time, if there was a fire in the community or if there was a heart attack or a stroke, the house would be gone the person would not survive. So we had luckily the, the, the first responders were a minute walk away from her house. So it's not on them. It was, it was just, it was, it was her time to finally, finally go based on the way things ended up falling into place. Um, but they got there. They, they tried, they couldn't revive her. She had um, collapsed onto my, like she collapsed into my sister's arm. Um, she had, she had, had, she had, she couldn't, she, she, um, she had collapsed in my sister's arm and we haven't followed up with it to find out. We're not very impressed with it, but I would love to see a comparative analysis done with non-native people in my region going to the hospital and, and how, what the success rate is for cancer and why it's so low to, to non-existent for my community. Again, not saying all doctors and nurses in my, my, my region are bad. I know people who I went to high school with some of these people. I went to elementary school with some of these nurses. Um, they're good people. They're, they're good people. And they're not the ones calling the shots half the time. Um, I know, I just, but it, it just, it's the barrier is so clear. Well, and that's the thing, right? Again, it's that whole thing. Like I said, we're cowies. So they know where we're from. Yeah. Um, Dan's mother was diagnosed with the same cancer in August of 2016. And she had just passed away in March of 2019. Yes. So we were fortunate we got her, we got to keep making memories with her and making a count with her for almost a full three years after her diagnosis. My mom got 11 days. A veteran, someone who had done peacekeeping, spent, she was a military police officer. She was part of the security detail for the Montreal Olympics in 76. She had went over with other um, peacekeepers to go help with the South Vietnamese who were fleeing. We, they were called boat people. That's not politically correct anymore, but the South Vietnamese who, who had fled, she helped with bringing them back to Canada. She'd gone six months over to Egypt and Israel with the Camp, Camp David Accords in 86. She retired in 91 because of the cuts that were done by Mulroney, but she, you know, there was a point of period where she almost went to the Gulf War, but obviously she was a single parent, so she, they, they didn't let single parents go. Um, she served for 17 years um, and then went on to serve the community. She went back to school. She got her undergrad. She got her teaching degree. She taught as much as she could, but because she was an older person, it was harder for her to get a permanent position. So she eventually gave up and started working back in the community, but she was still an educator. She was still like an auntie to many people, whether they were blood related or not in our community. That's our, that's our customs. Um, never bragged about it. My first Christmas she had missed um, because she was part of a search and rescue team in Northern Quebec looking for a plane that had crashed. Um, 
so for that to happen, it's, and I'm not just saying that because it's my mother, but, and I know there's similar stories that this story is not, this is not the only one. You have Brian Seclair who died waiting in, in the eMERGE area of a hospital in Winnipeg because it was thought that she was, he was just, you know, an alcoholic and drunk. Um, you have these cases across the country um, because there is systematic racism within, um, within the healthcare system, not just the healthcare system, but the legal system, the justice system, or that's both of them, the police system. Yep. It's in the academic system. Yep. Um, I literally had someone on my, my, when I was doing my, you, you will hear, I told you probably about this cause I bring it up all the time. My Canadian comprehensive. Uh, so when you're doing a PhD and again, I want to say that there are many good people at the university of Alberta in, in the department of my choice. Um, my, my, advisor is amazing um the teachers that i had during that time i absolutely love i've learned so much from a lot of the people there are select people though who really need to go and take a a a, a call like a course um to understand that just because you may be a woman does not mean you can speak for all women or that just because you're a woman does not mean you share the same experiences as native people or black people Mm -hmm. um uh, at, at at my university you go and do two comprehensive exams so you have your coursework your first year. The second year is you do comprehensive exams. So it depends on the university. So at University of Alberta, you do two papers, one in each of your fields. So my subfields were Canadian and comparative because Indigenous politics does not yet exist as a subfield. So I'm really in Canadian comparative and Indigenous. So that's what I tell everyone. And that's what I list on my own, my own bio because that is what I do. I do a lot of stuff between Indigenous can and, and Canadian uh, relations and history and po- political relations. But I also do a lot with Australia and New Zealand. Um, so I do a lot between indigenous people and British colonial, uh, structures is pretty much what I'll say. Um, but, um, so you do one for each of your fields and you have to do 10,000 words per each, um, minimum, like that's maximum you're supposed to do. So many people have handed in their comprehensive exams, been double that someone in my cohort who is a good friend, nothing against him, uh, was over his limit. Um, I got in trouble for being over my limits. My Canadian comp, because I was talking about bringing indigeneity into Canadian political science, it was double the words almost. It was about, I think the first round I did was about 18,000, but that's because I'm pretty much meshing indigenous studies with political science. So you have no choice. My My comparative politics was talking about how we need to have a discussion about sovereignty and that sovereignty in the Western construct does not necessarily equate the same for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that we need to have a discussion in a comparative sense on what sovereignty means for other people. So I was told my, my comparative uh, comp was an issue because sovereignty is an IR thing. Yeah, but comparative is about everything, you know? Like, if someone had told me a long time ago not, not to do comparative because it will talk about everything, you have to do everything in it, I, should, I would have listened because, yeah. So anyone who's listening wants to do political science, avoid comparative, because you'll be talking about all the things. Um, I had someone say my Canadian comp was a conspiracy theory because I talked about bringing indigeneity into the field. Yeah. So I failed my first round. They, this wasn't my mentors. My mentors were amazing. I give kudos to them for working with me and trying, but it was also other people. There is various reasons for issues over that. Um, I had one person who seemed not to be very impressed that I did not include any of their information or any of their research in it. Um, this person was looked at as the Canadianist indigenous person to an extent over, over this, this, this topic as well. Um, they're, they're indigenous, but they're indigenous to another region of the Americas. Um, the, re, the, the, the experience in different parts of the Americas in relation to colonialism is different depending on which nation and which European power they had to, to, 
build relationships with or who were, who, you know, pretty much tried to murder them all. Uh, it depends. Um, I think for someone who has an understanding on the indigenous Canadian relationship, it's important to have someone who actually gets it from within because they're a part of it. Um, I grew up understanding that colonization is the issue for what has been done to first nation women. Um, I do see a need for indigenous feminism. I get it. I just, I never grew up learning about it because I only learned from women. My mom, my aunt, my elders were all female. My language instructor was female. So learning from them, it was, decolonization is how we get rid of the patriarchy because colonialism is what created the patriarchy for a lot of indigenous uh, nations. Um, Métis might be a different story again because parts of European constructs come into to how their nation is formed. Um, but um, I got reprimanded for that. But I know other people who have been able to say, well, that's not a part of my culture. Feminism is not a part of my culture. So they were passed. Or people who, you know, had double the word counts. Um, I know someone who had a few years before me had more than double the word count for one comp. They passed just fine. So I got accosted for having too many words for being above the limit. And um, I got accosted because sovereignty is, a, is an IR thing. It doesn't get discussed in comparative. And they wanted me to change my topic originally on Canadian. And I told them, no, I'm like, I will not change my topic. I will rewrite it. I'm like, but I will not change my topic from being about indigeneity in, in the field of Canadian politics. I'm like, that's why I came there. That's why I went out to U of A. Um, when I got brought in as a student, it was the person who was in charge of the graduate uh, um, part, uh, the, the graduate uh, program at uh, there for my field. Um, she had a lot of intersections herself. She's amazing. Um, if anyone's listening and they want to read up stuff about uh, some really good stuff, look up Melinda Smith. She is amazing. Um, for Canadian, look up Janine Brody. Look up uh, Linda Trimble. Uh, for identity politics, look up Yasmin Abu Lavin. Um, amazing people I had a chance to learn from and who have influenced me in so many ways. European politics, Lori Thorlax, and great people to learn from. Um, there are many people in that department who are, who are good to look, who are good to learn from. But, um, the issue I ended up having was that during this process, when I failed, uh, this is what I had. I had heard, like, again, I, I heard someone say my, my Canadian was conspiracy theory. I was shocked by that. This is someone who does health policy. Um, so why they were in charge of my Canadian side, I don't know, cause they mainly do health policy. Um, but on top of that, when I talked to the new graduate chair at the time, because she had, um, the, the person who was there when I got brought in as a student was no longer the graduate chair. It was someone else. Um, they knew in my department, I dealt with anxiety and depression. And so my anxiety gets really up, especially when I'm freaking out. And the comprehensive exams are a really powerful thing to go through. They are, I wouldn't wish it upon my enemy. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a difficult, stressful thing to go through because I definitely to- wish it on Stephen Harper then. <laughs> I don't know. I might have sympathy because I've gone through it. So I might be like, this is how I get. He deserves here. none. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this person, uh, she was the graduate chair. She was clearly upper British, like upper class British. You could tell. Um, had a lot of degrees from very prestigious British schools. Um, tell me that, you know, it only gets harder from here. And so I should, con- what, and that I potentially should consider, you know, rethinking what my future is. Um, but then also proceeded to tell me, well, as a woman, I know what it means, what it's like to face, um, what's the term? Oppression. Not oppression. Different term. I can't remember. I don't know why I'm thinking of it, but, uh, 
I know what it's like to have barriers in my way or something like that. And I'm like looking at her and I'm looking at her Oxford and other degrees and then looking at her again, as she just told me that, you know, it only gets harder from here. Um, and, you know, other people who've dealt with forms of identity politics have faced issues when this person, uh, and this is just my own perspective, so I can't say it's, it's, it's true. I just, from what I've seen and from what I've heard from other students who are from specific backgrounds who were hired or who were brought in as students prior to this person having become chair, she, she's no longer there, which I'm, I'm thankful for. Um, and it just so happened, like during that period as well, I didn't get any scholarships. I did not get awarded anything. Um, until after they were gone, but it wasn't just me. It was just, it seemed to be a lot of those who dealt with what would be defined as identity politics faced a, a murky period while that person was in charge of the department. Um, and yeah, but that's tens of thousands of dollars for you. And that like, that's the whole thing. Like I, I don't understand how people can't see how, how almost impossible it is for indigenous people to succeed. Well, when I after my first year, I had to come and ask them about work. I had to ask, I had to ask them for work because it was assumed that I was getting funding from my community. I don't get funding from my community, so it was assumed that I was going to be okay. And I had to be like, "No, I need work." I'm like, "I have no funding." There was an assumption there that was quickly corrected, but I know that happens with a lot of students. But um, the the amount of pushback some people have because they think their way of doing political science is the only way it should be done. Um, is problematic. Again, luckily, um, they eventually were no longer grad chair. Um, my advisor and other good people, currently the, 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 the person in charge of the grad program and who's in generally in charge of the department, they're all good people. They're, they're, they're great. Like, so I, I can't say anything negative. And it was just that period of time there that was hard to deal with. Um, when I had to redefend, because so if you fail your comps the first time, you have to, re you can rewrite them and then go again and if you fail the second time you have to withdraw from the program so you get two you get two chances um i was the first one so what had happened the cohort before me half of them failed out half of them failed their their comprehensive exams they rewrote them tried to pass the second time they failed them um my cohort i was the second of my cohorts to go the person before me got a conditional pass um i failed i was the only person who failed and then passed the second time um, out of, I think, four people for me. So that's what my cohort had going in, the fact that four people failed and then failed out because they failed the second time. Um, four or three, I, I can't remember. It's, it's around, it's four or three, but it was traumatic and dealing with depression, anxiety. Like I had a freak out because a good friend of mine was someone who had failed out just before my defense. So I had an anxiety attack and I went to talk to this, this, this department chair or this graduate chair. And it was just saying like, I was freaking out because of it. And that's why they mentioned later on after I'd failed that, you know, maybe I should, it's only going to get harder from here. So maybe you should consider your options. And it's like, I came to you in trust and confidence because I was having an anxiety attack, not because I was weak. And I came along and passed it a, a second time. Like I, I passed it the second time. So I was very happy. Um, I was very stubborn. Um, now it's just getting getting the dissertation done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like, I can't wait well, to call you Dr. Cowie. Thank you. My enemies, I will force to call me that. But, no. <laughs> um, but like, my story is not dissimilar to others that I heard of. There is a lot of things that get pushed back. And like, 
I had my advisor, my MA advisor, amazing person. I'm so thankful I got a chance to learn from her. Again, if you are interested in political science or political stuff, indigenous politics, um, Kiara Ladner, look her up. Her articles, her, her stuff is amazing. She does a lot of stuff on constitutional, uh, constitutionalism, treaty federalism in the past. Um, I'm so thankful I got to learn from her for, for my master's degree and that she still influences me today. I'm glad to be able to call her as someone who taught me a lot. Um, she also taught my aunt and my mom when they were at Trent as mature students. Yeah. She, well, no, she taught my aunt at Trent, but she sat on a board with my, my mother. So when I, I met Kira, it was in my undergrad. She was originally teaching at Western and she was teaching my intro to Canadian politics class. And I went to introduce her. I went to introduce myself and I said my last name. She's a Cowie. Cowie, our, or is your mother Georgina? I'm like, that's my aunt. And she's like, so your mother's Beverly. And I'm like, yes. How do you know this? And so she had, when she originally finished her, all of her um, education, she had went and taught at Trent. And so she had taught my, my aunt a class and she sat on a board with my mom. So, and she's the one who convinced me to go back after I finished my undergrad. Cause I had some, I had a hard time when I finished undergrad. It was difficult i had um gone through a really bad depression during my last year when i worked for a year for that organization that represents 133 uh of the the communities in ontario um and uh she's the one who convinced me to go back and get to up my gpa to be able to go back to school so i'm only i like i have to acknowledge i am where i am today because kiera pushed me to go back and told me that no you need to go back and and get your grades higher and then come out here and do a master's with me and i'm so thankful for that Oh, that's so sweet. That's so kind. I, you know, I think of um, when I graduated high school in 94 and like there was just no, there was nobody to go talk to about these things. I'm so grateful you had somebody in your life that just understood and helped you through, well, helped encourage you. I mean, you did that work and rightfully so you deserve every accolade for it. So I just, I don't know. And then, um, on top of it, like you were really embedded in the, uh, in the Liberal Party, and that's a lot of extracurricular work on top of what you're doing. Like it's 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 such a I don't know how you did it. Like I mean, I'm taking um, stock of the amount of hours I open emails, I close emails, respond to emails, respond to this, respond to that, make reports, and it's like I I don't have full time school. So I, I can't imagine. If you remember my last year involved, my last year on the IPC executive as co-chair. Um, yeah, it was, it was last year. So the fall, I got married. I was working full time as a recruiter. So I was on the road that entire fall. Um, I was working on my proposal for my dissertation. And then I was doing the, the IPC stuff, which is a full-time job. You know, it is like, yes. it, there's a lot. Um, so I was doing four things that were taking up everything. Plus, you know, trying to make sure I did not <laughs> lose my spouse <laughs> during that time because yeah. of, a because of a reckless abandonment or not, not having time, but he understood that I, I was very actively involved. So that was how my, my fall was. And so I was also and like, you know, I got married, so I was planning my wedding. Um, so I got married in November and, you know, I was like, cool, but I decided to teach that. That was my first, the winter was my first semester teaching at McGill. So I also taught. So I replaced wedding planning with class. So during the fall, right up until convention in Halifax, I was teaching because I brought a whole bunch of essays with me, if you remember from my like final papers for my class. And I went off to a, to a Starbucks 
Um, cause I, I went and did my parts. I said I would do what I, I had to do. And then I, I had to go Mark and I sadly met some poor first year PhD student who was all excited. And I'm like, well, you'll be emptied like I am on the inside soon, but it just, it came out by accident. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was your but, um, like I was doing that plus getting ready for convention, making sure everything was in order, making sure policy was ready, making sure, you know, the executive was, was, was strong, making sure our constitution was strong. Cause that was also the, the period of time when we had, when, when with Rhonda Evans, our membership and organization person during that executive had to rewrite our, what was it called? What's it called now? It's not the constitution. It's, it's, it's our section of constitution, but what's it called? Um, <laughs> uh, charter. Yeah, we had, to do, we had to write our charter. So these are the basic things, our bylaws that we would follow. Uh, and that was a whole other thing because when I asked Rhonda to run, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, you just have to keep track of everyone, make sure they have their elections. And then this happened. I'm like, so yeah. <laughs> so Rhonda, um, I know she's so great though. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But like, there was all that during that entire year too. And then, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, it was a busy period, but I loved it. I, I'm, I'm, about 60, 70 pounds lighter than I was during that period. Because <laughs> oh, it was so stressful. I don't, I can't. So, and in Alberta here, um, like we have constitutional lawyers that just absolutely were ripping apart the whole idea. And it was actually Albertans that were really against the uh, new constitution and the new uh, charter changes. And, um, you know, it just, it was such an isolating experience because, um, I mean, Chester Trudeau actually stood up and talked about being in favor of the Constitution. And it's like, that's not fair. You're the prime minister. That's not fair. So, yeah, and Alberta kind of stayed in our seats and just shut up. And <laughs> Well, it's, it's hard, right? Like, because that's also part of the party mentality. You know, you have to put on the red colored glasses and drink the Kool-Aid. You can't speak up because the leader is good. The leader is great. The president is good. The president is great. No, she would not. Um, again, you know like, what's funny I can tell you Chad like even for me I mean I've been you know trying to help this this party for how many years and you know at first they'll follow me be friends with me and then over the course of time it's like oh somewhere along the lines I've been unfriended or unfollowed and you know whether it's them themselves or maybe a staffer I don't know but either or it's so painfully clear like here it is now after all of this conversation about gaslighting and, you know, us trying to tell them a million things. I feel like, oh, maybe now that they're starting to understand. I mean, they will never eat crow and say sorry to you or to me, but there will be somebody new that's bright eyed and brushy tailed and, and, you know, that's who they'll um, hook into. But ultimately like it's just some of us just kind of get pushed to the side for sure that's how it works so right you know yeah. like there's but she tells like i came in like that well why didn't we try this rusty abo back in the early 90s would have been that example he was bright-eyed bushy-tailed um there's a reason why he is obviously not involved anymore and why he's being very critical i understand it i just did not like when he called my entire executive my first term children because we were young um I was eight going on to be an 18, 20 when I was a kid because of half the stuff that I had to go through. So, um, yeah, I may be, I may have been young, but I have understanding too. I have book smarts, but I also have street smarts. I, I know where I come from. Um, and I also have a foot in both canoes, but, um, that is the case. It's always new people come up who have the energy, right? So I was clearly burning on, on whatever fumes were left in my tank by the time I was done. And the agreement was because I wanted to make sure the rest of you did not suffer because of my standings um was to to fall on the sword so that way 
those of you who are still there could continue on and not be looked at negatively because of being associated with me. Um, and there's many of you guys in the IPC still who are doing great work. I'm glad you guys can continue it. I'm still sitting on the side on, you know, a chair with popcorn watching whatever slow motion situations going on. But I, I totally support the IPC for what they're doing. They're there to try to do good things. There are always some people who get involved who are indigenous, who are there for their own self meaning. We know a couple. Um, and there are many who get involved though, to do what is right, to make things better for their community. So they are working from the inside, trying to change it. The people on the inside who are actually trying to change it are just as important as the people out on the streets, pushing from the outside. Both have to work together in some way. I'm not saying that they have to agree with each other, but some of the push that can be done on the inside comes from the education that yourself, myself, and other people have been doing on the inside. And when they see the push from the outside, it can be like, see, now you need to keep listening. So that helps with getting some understanding. Um, does it always work? No. Um, am I having, you know, reconsideration about being able to always push from the inside? Yes. But that's me. I did my time and I think I'm now more part of that generation who's there to help give the tools to the next generation to dismantle the, the master's house, to, 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 to blow up the master's house to an extent. <laughs> uh, no way does that mean that I'm actually referring to blowing anything up. That's a figure of speech. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I end up having myself wiretapped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh it's a really world, weird world we live in now where we have to clarify and some things that like I'm prior to nine 11, I used to um, in Sylvan Lake, people called the tourists terrorists. And of course, after nine 11, probably not very socially or like politically correct in any way, shape or form. So um, yeah, I get it. I, and I hate it because we're already over policed and over monitored and, and such and people try to take what we say out of context i hate it so um anyway i just hope you know i so appreciate you sharing everything that you shared and i'm so glad you finally got to be on my my uh, podcast like it's one of those things i i want to have you and naomi and and we were so close with naomi but then the whole we had an, a whole thing happen and it was so sad because she just got her um uh bar where you go to the bar and and they allow you to be a lawyer in in uh, Alberta, so I don't know. Her bar association, just so she, so she has Ontario and Alberta. Yeah, that's another person. If anyone's listening, you really want to learn from a very strong um, person. Who? Oh my God, her writing. She has tons of writing notes. She has a blog. Um, yeah, oh, and she's Naomi, a lawyer. Like, can I? Do you like her name being said? I'm assuming because she has her law firm. But Naomi Sayers, if you look her up, look her up in. Put her name, you'll have so many amazing things to read and, and look at. She gives you a lot of things to consider. And I know I've learned a lot from her, just as I've learned from you, Michelle. And many people I've learned from being politically involved and through my own education uh, pursuits. Uh, it's not just academics, teachers who taught me. I've learned a lot from friends. And Naomi is someone I've learned a lot from as well, just as I've learned from you. To be able to have conversations and know that we're just having conversations and being able to um talk and support each other whether or not we have the same opinion on something i still remember us talking about site c and having to go between you know you know telling the party off versus uh you know just not saying anything and we had to come to that middle i remember that middle ground piece that we wrote was contentious issue for the communications for the party <laughs> yeah like, i know the thing we took we said we supported <laughs> you went drip and we supported proper consultation that's all we said <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's a crazy thing. I always thought we were helping and, and, and trying to give that Indigenous perspective. And the irony is, is that they just sometimes don't want to hear it at all. And I hope now in this post, I don't know, I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, we were going to have Chief Adam out, Adam at our um, IPC fundraiser, the, like the weekend after everything got um, shut down from COVID-19. And, you know, I just don't know what to really expect anymore. But um, we're doing some town hall uh, call-ins. And it's kind of sucks because I still haven't met this uh, Seamus O'Regan. And uh, he has a town hall. So I sent in a, a question. But yeah, I just don't even know him. I've never met him. Nothing. And um, it, you know, I'm from Alberta. I'm indigenous. We should have a relationship. Ah, whatever. Well, it's 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 hard, right? Like, I think Mark Miller's doing a good job. It's it's hard, but we need to also remember he took initiative to learn stuff about indigenous people from his own region that he's from. Yeah. He started learning a Mohawk. He started understanding more stuff in that region long before he became a minister. He has some really great people working for him who get it. Um, I was very happy with how some of the approaches were that he did take during the, the blockades uh, over Wet'suwet'en um, and how he's responded about RCMP issues uh, in regards to how we're treated as Indigenous people. It's unfortunate that people are shocked by it because this has been an ongoing issue. We've got to remember the RCMP was formed as the Northwest Mountain Police, not... Well, they were formed to tame the West, and that taming also meant dealing with us and the prairie nations that existed out there. That's you that's see what... what I share on Twitter and Facebook. Like he's not following me clearly. We should have a relationship. We don't. And um, it's just one of those things. It's like, if this is a shock to you, then you need to do better. You need to be paying attention because I mean, it's not just me. I mean, just follow, I don't know, one of the CBC um, indigenous reporters, just follow one of them. Don't follow me follow one of them and see yep. this should not shock you. Well, that's that's the thing, right? Like some of the things that even Indigenous uh, journalists go through, what they have to read and see. Like two of my favorite ones to follow. One is uh, I, I'll never get her first first name right. She's Mohawk. She lives in she's from Ganawagi, Kalesio Deer. My last name D E E R. I love following her. I have her on social media, and I, I, I follow a lot of her stories. But also Rhiannon Johnson, who's from my community. She also worked for CBC Indigenous, um, and I was recently quoted a thing about voting from her. But um, both of them, I enjoy reading their stuff because I have connection with them. One's from the territory I know a sibling of one of them, and then the other one I grew up with. Um, I still remember when she started kindergarten. So. There you go. Angela <laughs> but, um, Sterrett, she's the one I follow the most, I think, because she, right. uh, like, she puts, well, she's actually from the Wet'suwet'en uh, territory, so she know, she was the one who taught us how to say Wet'suwet'en, um, Yenke, Unastodin, um, Gidamanden, and Delamuk. Like she was the one who taught us that. She put out that video. Um, so it, I don't know. I really love having her there. But uh, you know, it, I don't know what more to say. There's some some politicians that have the audacity to say, you know, I'm surprised when you yourself seeing the policies that I put forward from you know, RCMP spying and um, treating Indigenous poorly and not wanting that. And, you know, I don't know if they just didn't read the policies. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> policies, but report after report, inquiry, commission from Hawthorne 
all the way up to even the missing and murdered indigenous women choir, the same things have been said. You can look back to the early 1900s reports on residential schools and, and, and about taking children away from their communities and it being not lauded. You could see issues about housing and infrastructure in communities. You can see these reports, they go back. There'll be another report in 10 years that is gonna say the same thing that parts of RCAP, the TRC, that missing and murdered indigenous women inquiry said, things that were said in the Royal Commission on Electoral Reform and Party Financing, things that were said back in the 80s during the constitutional, make a constitutional discussions. These are always said. So it's, it's hard yeah. when you hear well, this. Um, some of the select politicians that are still in parliament were there the day our cap was introduced into parliament and what happened to that we just finally a couple years ago had indian affairs divided into well it was called indigenous affairs which was a good change but indigenous affairs was finally divided into two different ministries this was suggested by our cap in 1996 just, yes which only happened in what 2017 it was my was it my first year teaching? Yeah, it was because it, it, it was weird that it happened because we were talking about it in my class and it was um, a big change. Yeah, because my first year was Colton Bushi, the, the, the acquittal, but also the changing of the ministries into two different ministries or, or changing the ministry to two different ministries. The second one was my second year teaching was when everything happened with Jody Wilson-Raybould. And always happens when I'm talking about westward expansion and further paternalism, when I'm talking about the number treaties and, and how the clearing of the plains, but always, always these big issues nationally happened right during that time. And then that happened again, what's went was right, like when everything went up in the air and went, went bad because Canada decided to do its national interest argument. Um, it was, um, it happened right during that same period of time when I was talking about uh, Western expansion and further paternalism. When we talked about the Indian act and opening the, the prairies to European settlement. But um, I had to talk with the students about, what that means, national interest, which comes from these core cases, which you've already mentioned, um, where it's the idea that Canada has a right to infringe on Indigenous rights, First Nation rights specifically, when it is at the when it is in the national interest of the country, the national interest of Canadians can therefore override Indigenous rights. But it's funny how it can override Indigenous rights in places where there's no treaty, such as, such as, um, what's wetting or how do you say it? Cause I never learned how to say it properly. So I just realized I was doing it wrong. Not really. Like, it, so it's wetsuwetin. So you, wet you've got it. So you just say it quick and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. I say it quick. So I say it wrong. So. <laughs> but, um, like, uh, it's interesting that they can argue that. And as soon as, cause I remember in early January when, when the prime minister of Canada started using the term national interest to describe, describe the area, I was like, I told my students, I'm like, watch, this is what they're going to argue. And that's what they argued. Um, that's when they can override it. But it never goes well when they do it that way because it still infringes on indigenous rights, especially when there was two different opportunities for a different way for the pipeline to go through. Um, arguments about the fact that there's no treaty, so it's not ceded, and therefore it's still wet to wet and title. Um, but just how people responded to that shows you just the issues here. And so I've always hated when people like talked about the United States and, you know, Canada is like that that apartment above like a drug den or above a gang den and it's like no no Canada is the second floor to a two-story house you just aren't paying attention and seeing it and so when people have been angry again as I said earlier have been angry over what's happened down in the states that's good good it's good to be angry I'm, I'm glad to see these statues of confederates and slaveholders and Columbus get tossed and I, I would love to see the the statue of Johnny McDonald here in Montreal get thrown into the St. Lawrence put him back where he should be and should have stayed uh, in the water, <laughs> but yep. 
Um, where was that anger when Canadians were threatening to drive through Native people because we weren't worth anything? When, where was the anger from people who would have heard about the two women charged for promoting Shoot a Savage Day? Where was the anger over the man who promoted napalming our communities? And where was the anger recently over a man who was charged for threatening to go and spread COVID amongst Indigenous people so that way we'd go away? Yeah. Did you know that I'm still collecting um, community um, statements over that because uh, they have a really strong case, but I, it's really important that people of prominence, you know, write the police and tell them how it affected them so that that way we have an even stronger case, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, because that was right here and I hate it. It's so embarrassing when we make uh, national news for the, all the wrong reasons. But then at the same time, we make national news for all the wrong reasons. And yet people are like, oh, what do you mean? There's racism? So that whole gaslighting um, has been really hard for me this week. And uh, I, I don't know if getting over it's the right word, but I'm starting to at least make peace with it a bit where it's like, okay, so this is all fucking new to you and you all just didn't read the TRC or the inquiry and you know you've only had the TRC for five years you've only had the inquiry free for a year uh you've only had the RCAP available since 1996 so this is all a shock to you shut up just shut like I, honestly I having a really hard time with some of the stupid comments that come from people and then the silence from people that, you know, you would think would be the strongest advocates or, or, or whichever to say about it. Um, but it is, it doesn't matter. It, 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 we are where we are. And, you know, you've been working really hard at trying to change this narrative for decades now. So we'll just, if you just keep going. It's, it's hard how to like, when you bring in indigenous sovereignty, when you bring in nationhood, you bring in the unilateral imposition by Canada, it calls into question the legitimacy of the Canadian state. People are afraid of that. Um, yeah. But not only does it call into question the legitimacy of the state, but it calls into question the Canadian identity. As we know, having identity called into question and judged is a hard thing to go through. And when people are taught a certain narrative that has been very much implemented for 50 years in our education system about what a Canadian is it's it's hard uh, but I see progress in my uh, during my master's program like during my master's degree when I was doing coursework I had to read a piece that talked about settlers it was the first time I heard Canadians referred to that way in an academic piece I was one of seven people in the class the other six were non-natives they all were all angry they were not happy to be called settlers because they were Canadian that was their identity my first year teaching, we had an open discussion about settler identity and what that meant. And is it, and again, this is what we talked about earlier in the session. Um, but it was an open discussion. I had to tell them. And again, I, that was the same thing last year and the same thing this year. That open discussion was able to happen. And I've told each year that I've taught the class, I'm like, in my master's program, when I, when I heard this term, this could not be talked about openly without people being all up in, in arms. I'm like, to hear okay. you guys being in the session was amazing to me. And so, like, I would tell my students that because I've, that shows me progress. So there's change coming. Um, okay, but I have to tell you this story then. I have to. Okay. During the high divide no more, so this would have been 2012-ish, um, Ezra yeah, Levant came to Calgary because he was going to go after uh, David Suzuki. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there in my outfits and whatever. I, I wasn't even dressed traditionally. I think I was dressed in, like, a suit-type uh, outfit, right? Like, that's what I, I think I was wearing. 
and Ezra Levent put a, you know, mic in my mouth and said something or other. And I said something about settlers. And he said, that's really offensive to me. And I laughed at him and I said, well, sir, I know that you've been in Toronto for a super long time, but just down the road over there is the uh, Settler Pioneer Society, where they proudly call themselves settlers. So I was actually born and raised here, and I'm quite used to people proudly talking about their settler roots as pioneers. So you might want to double check your uh, Eastern status there, buddy. And he never aired that, of course, but he got so angry and him and his crew just like took off away from me. And then I did watch, he kind of covered it a little bit, and he said, he basically questioned my indigeneity and he was like, well, it was just this beautiful woman with, with green eyes. She wouldn't tell me her name, but you know, and, and just kind of downplayed me. And, but it was kind of a favorite moment because here in Alberta, saying the term settler is quite normalized, but for poor Toronto Easterners, they are so offended with their settler fragility. <laughs> Southern Ontarians, Northern Ontarians to an extent, Quebecers, Maritimers, very much offended by the term, you know, because their families came over, you know, in the 1600s. Um, my favorite comment is from my friend Megan. Her family can be connected to the Mayflower. And one of her ancestors named Love, I don't remember her last name, but it was Love something. And so she, we, we had a good joke about that, but got kidnapped by Native people. And I'm just like, you probably stole food. And she's like, yeah, they, I guarantee you my ancestors deserved it. So she's woke. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, <laughs> so yeah I, I already know that probably is what, like, she probably definitely deserved it. So um, it's funny to have that, those kind of talks, but it's just, it's, it's interesting how people can't comprehend. And that's where um, the term settler is an issue. If, if you can, like, if I can quickly go up and get my notes for my, I did a presentation, a, 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 a talk to, um, at, at the University of Regina, I did a guest lecture there last Sunday uh, for a class, but I did a definition of settler colonial, and I'm going to share that, and then I'll be done, and I'll shut up. <laughs> As if. I love talking with you. But it's, it's an important definition that people need to remember, that this is the difference between colonial and why it's important to remember that Canada is a settler colonial state. My office is full of different... Oh, sorry, one second. Am I still there? Yep, I see you. Sorry, I, I did something. You. I touched a button. I'm so no longer technologically inclined. Um, my office is full of stuff right now because I've been <laughs> doing work on my dissertation and <laughs> articles. But so I, I did a I did a discussion on indigenous methodologies and research and you know how to incorporate more indigenous understandings so that way we're learning instead of making assumptions because that's been a problem with quantitative and qualitative methods and how we do research is that it sometimes leaves out the actual way indigenous people need to be talked and that there's more that has to go alongside than just treating it like it's a research while also remembering Western academia and Western research is biased because it's based in Western understanding. This was all used as a way to undermine different groups of people, including indigenous people from contact on, uh, especially after the enlightenment period. But um, what we need to remember as well is what settler colonialism is. Um, and Canadians need to understand that this is Canada and this is part of their identity. And when you're agreeing to Canada, when you're accepting that you're Canadian, you need to also remember that this is part of Canada and part of being Canadian and that in order to reconcile, you have to understand this in order to be able to bring reconciliation in general. So, settler colonialism is a distinct type of colonialism that functions through the replacement of indigenous peoples with a settler society that over time develops a distinctive identity and concept of their sovereignty. 
Settler colonialism can be distinguished from other forms of colonialism in the following ways. Settler colonizers come to stay. Settler colonial invasion is a structure, not an event. Settler colonialism seeks to its own end. Unlike other types of colonialism in which the goal is to maintain colonial structures and imbalances in power between colonizer and colonized, settler colonization trends towards the ending of colonial difference in the form of a supreme and unchallenged settler state and people. This is where we get absorbed. That is why the Indian Act is the way it is why we eventually will be filtered out. Because when there is no longer native people in a community, who gets that land? It goes back to crown land. My community will be, extinct by, will be extinct by the end of the century if we go by this understanding. And this is important to remember when actually approaching all this stuff because it has that impact. And this is important to remember that this is not just about colonialism. It's not the same as in Africa. It's not the same as in um, parts of Asia. It's not the same as in um, uh, some of the island nations in the Pacific. Canada is here and they're establishing that they're here to stay and trying to absorb us in and treat us like we are once calling us Canada's aboriginals, Canada's natives, furthers that narrative and reminds us that we, no matter what we try to do, they're still trying to make sure that we only identify as this way. I am on, I look at myself as a dual citizen, as I've told you, I'm an Anishinaabe citizen as well as a citizen of Canada because I'm acknowledging my, my Canadian roots, but specifically my, my Irish background, but their connections to that background in honor of my grandmother, but also my Anishinaabe, my Mississauga roots through my grandfather and through my mother. Um, and my job is to make sure that my nation does not disappear, but is acknowledged and recognized. If my nation decides to federate with the Canadian state at one time in the future, that's another thing. That's a whole other thing. And by nation, I don't mean my community. I'm a Mississauga person. There are seven, six communities that are Mississauga. Sorry, sometimes... It's, I'm still learning some stuff about my Mississauga roots because it's only been the last couple of years where, my, where the Mississauga communities have been re-coming together for the first time in 200 years. Yeah. Um, but we are a nation. Uh, if we decide to federate with Canada, that's a whole other thing. But if, if we don't, like some other groups of uh, some other nations would prefer not to, our confederacies like the Haudenosaunee will never probably confederate <laughs> with, with Canada. Um, it just needs to be expected or accepted. Um, as long as we keep remembering that, as long as Canadians start to learn that, that's how we start to deconstruct settler colonialism. It's also how we start to deconstruct colonialism in general and what I would term as legislative genocide towards First Nations people. Oh, 100%. And I think they've said that basically in RCAP and TRC as well. And then I know they said it in uh, uh, the uh, National Inquiry because they talked about how um, when they created the Indian Act and the uh, the gender... um, well, the sexism within the Indian Act, how that absolutely was part of the genocide that um, are the women and those identify as two-spirit are facing. So, um, yeah, no, I, it's, I don't think that's even debatable. I think it's fact. So, Which is what needs to be reminded to Canadians um, and needs to be understood. And that Canadians need to understand this is not necessarily an attack on their identity. This is an identity part. This is a part of their history that needs to be reconciled, not forgotten, not pretended like it's in the past, because as I've said many times, it's, it's nice to pretend like it's in the past. It's nice to say, Oh, you know, we, we must look forward when you're from the dominant group who's not been impacted negatively. You can't move forward unless you acknowledge and take ownership of the past, especially when the past is not just created by one person. Chad, seriously, this second right now, we've had more police killing of indigenous people in New Brunswick than COVID-19 today. And that's what people are putting out on Twitter and Facebook. And it's true. So 
like for anyone to say it was in the past, like they can just eat me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you know, Chad, I know you and I could talk forever and you are welcome on my podcast anytime. Like we can do one tomorrow or we can do one two years from now. Just know that I, you know, I, I don't just consider you like a colleague, like you are one of my dearest, closest friends. And I am so grateful because you're one of the only people that understand the world the way I understand the world and um, and I don't have to explain myself and I get so exhausted with the white coding and then you and I both know when we have to white code together in order to try to make any positive change so I just so grateful that you're in my world in my life and I'm we've gone on this journey together and I just can't thank you enough for being on my podcast too happy to be here thank you for having me and obviously i look at you more like a more than a colleague and you're definitely a very close friend you wouldn't have gotten invited to the wedding if that was not the case oh my god i wish i could go on and on about how nice your wedding was too so crazy to talk about like literally where hogwarts is (laughs) well that's my whole thing i do the work that i do because i want things better for the next generation i have been fortunate enough i benefited from I can only imagine what my mother went through as an indigenous woman who was in the military in the seventies and eighties and early nineties. I can only imagine what my, my, my partner's mother went through during the exact same period of time in social work and trying to establish like what people of, of certain backgrounds or what women had to go through to be able to have the say that they do. And of course it's still not equal, still not right, but I know I am where I am because of the people I've learned from, including people like yourself, people like my mom, people like my, my, my mother-in-law. Um, even for the, 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 the 10 years I got to know my mother-in-law. Um, but I am who I am and I've learned from what I have based on the fact of what I've learned. And I try to remind myself that I can't let myself be stuck in one, one rut, one mindset. I'm pretty sure some things that I, I think now that my, my 18 year old self or my 22 year old self would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my gosh. Seriously, Chad, I feel you so hard on that. Oh, well, even even my thirty year old self, like, um, so I don't know if you watched Dave Chappelle's newest um, outtake here, fifteen minutes, but I did, and I've done enough um, anti racism work that what he said to me is not at all slightly offensive. It's not the opposite. Like I I um I had so much empathy of an understanding of everything he said but 10 years ago I would have been like that guy's racist I can't listen to this yeah so like like even 10 years ago Michelle um to today Michelle is such a different person and I'm just grateful to have you and so many people along my journey with me so I just hope you well, know it the other part of being in a state that's still colonial and being in a settler colonial society is that our own people us each individual is still we have decolonization to do within ourselves too. Yes, a hundred percent. My eighteen-year-old self wanted nothing to do with my indigenous background, even though I grew up in my community, because of the stereotypes and the stigma towards it. It was listening to an elderly woman, an elder from Stony Point. Her family was originally from Stony Point. This is what led to the Upper Wash um, um, standoff and and the murder of Dudley George. She was a little girl when they came in and evicted her community from their land. Uh, and her story made me rethink stuff. So it was an aha moment. Um, I wish she was still on this earth so I could thank her um, mm. for how it opened my mind. But at one time I told my mom that when I had kids, they were not to know that they were native. She was not to tell them. And if she told them, I would cut off contact. I would, she would never see them again. I told her that this is, the, this is my early teenagers. 
Yeah. For my 14-year-old. My 14-year-old would look at me and be like, huh, but, you know. Yeah. No, I was an asshole when I was 14. I um, was embarrassed of my Native mom and our visits and was happy to disown her when we could. And I just, I'm such an asshole when I think about what I was like then. But it was that parental alienation and it was that um, bigger picture of uh, Canada telling me to n never be proud of to be Native. So, like, I'm, I even have already forgiven myself and I always ask my mom and, you know, she's a strong Catholic. So she's like, oh, of course I forgive you. <laughs> but thank God she's so forgiving. <laughs> yeah. Good for that. But that is a big part. We Canadians forget, white and non-white Canadians forget that the pressure on us to reject who we are and who and what we come from is still so strong. And, you know, unless it's for a picture or a photo op, then, you know, oh, cool, look at that. But when we speak up, it's like, nope, be quiet. Um, but the pressure to still reject what we come from and, the, and reject the, hit, the, the history that exists and the contemporary actions that exist is still so strong. Um, again, changes are happening, and I just hope for future generations like your your daughter's like your daughter's generation my my nephew's and niece generation and hopefully my kids generation my grandchildren's generation if i'm lucky enough to have kids will be one that will have seen progressive change it will not be perfect it will not be completely decolonized i get that but um if i pass away and we've at least gone two steps forward i will i will be thankful for at least that instead of being stagnant or reversing like we're seeing in some places you know, I, I came across um, some articles that came out of no, uh, Vancouver in, I guess it would be 1990s. And um, I can tell you, I know we're doing better just by the language and just the way that things were written. But God, it just seems so bad when, and, and it, it is hard to qualify that when I can then say, you know, Joey English, Cindy Gladue, uh, Jackie Crazy Bull, Colton Bushi. And now we have new names to add to our trauma. Um, yeah. You know, that's just where we're at. So I um, it's hard because I don't know what the right answer is. And I'm tired of telling people that we have names behind, not just names like families behind every one of these names of, you know, children who will not have their mothers or, um, you know, brothers who can't have their sisters. Like, it's just, I, I'm so tired of trying to explain this and then to have, so much of Canada gaslight us and say, oh, that's not, we don't have racism in Canada. I just, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, next week will be a better week of hope, so. Crossing fingers. <laughs> okay, this time for sure, I gotta let you go. But I love you to pieces, Chad, so thank you for being on my show. Back to you, okay? Okay. Talk to you later. Bye.